Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, this morning I'll be doing a reading from Acts 17, uh, 10 to 15. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed and did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Thank you, Callum. Right, we're going to just start our message today just taking a brief look at Generation Z or Generation Z, depending on what part of the world you come from. Uh, now, there are some conjectures about what dates are considered to be Generation Z. Almost everyone agrees that it starts in 1995. So that's generally speaking. Uh, every person who decides these things says 1995 is when it starts. There's debate about whether it ends in 2009 or 2012. Uh, and different people who study these things have different reasons for saying what they say doesn't make a huge difference, but for the purposes of what I'm about to show, uh, these, are, these are figures for Generation Z, those aged from started 1995 through to 2012. The figures I'm looking at for today, they are in particular American figures, but I did cross-check the general principles with known Australian figures, and it's pretty much identical. Uh, reality is, Generation Z is one of the first global generations. They've grown up in a world which is just interconnected. And so many of the Generation Z from America look very similar to the Generation Z in Australia, look very similar to the Generation Z in other developed Western parts of the world. When it comes to spirituality, about 23% of Generation Z would be what's called this worldly. Now, they would never use that term themselves, but this is just the, the term that's used by those that are studying it. Uh, that means they are people that have no space in their worldview for religious, spiritual, or non-material possibilities. Uh, this is your atheist. But it's actually only 23%. So 23% have no space for spirituality, do not believe spirituality exists, do not believe that there's anything beyond this life and this world. Uh, there's another group that's connected to, but it's not identical to them, and that's what's called the indifferent. About 15% of Generation Z are indifferent. That means that they, they're largely indifferent or undecided about any of it. Religion, spirituality, atheism. Actually, at the end of the day, they just don't care. Uh, that's not a bad thing. It's just a realistic thing for this group of people. For about 15%, they don't have an opinion. Is there a God? Is there not a God? Is religion, is Christianity right? Is Christianity not right? They actually aren't strongly opinionated one way or the other. Those who are this worldly, they're ones who've got a conviction. No, it is not real. It's not true. None of it exists. 
be indifferent. Yeah, it's just kind of is what it is. Uh, then you have a group that have been told spiritual but not religious. Uh, this is about 18% of the Generation Z population. Uh, God, faith and religion are not important to them. But the door is open to spiritual possibilities. So they wouldn't say that they don't think it's real. If you scratch beneath the surface, they'd probably say that there is more to life than this. They're not particularly worried or interested, but they're not entirely indifferent. Uh, things like life after death, reincarnation, belief in a higher being of some kind, uh, though they wouldn't necessarily call that higher being God. Uh, there's a slightly different group to this group, and this makes up 8%. Uh, this group have been called seekers, though almost always this group would self-identify as spiritual. Uh, almost all, yeah, so this finds expression in the belief in life after death, so they would say that they believe that there is more to life than this, generally speaking. Uh, there's repeated experiences of a presence or a power that is different from their everyday selves. Uh, this is a group of people who is really open to the idea that there is more to life than this. And, and in many ways, they're actually seeking it. They're, they're wanting to know more. They're wanting to explore. But they're yet to find an answer that fully satisfies them. They're, they're yet to find in any of the things that they've explored something that satisfies them. Uh, just also for clarity, every one of these categories is in every generation. It's just that these stats are specific to Generation Z. So you might today identify with one of these. You might have once identified with one of these. There's another group, uh, about 19% of Generation Z, uh, what's called nominally religious. So they're culturally religious. They've kind of grown up maybe in a, in a religious home. Uh, this is not specific to Christianity. This is all religions or spiritual sort of practices. Uh, they kind of generally follow the religious identity of their parents or their guardians or their community. And so if they've grown up in a Christian country, they're probably sort of nominally Christian. They may not call themselves Christian, but they know that there's a bit of a Christian background. Uh, they identify with the religion. They believe in God. But faith isn't actually that important to their daily lives. Uh, this group might attend church from time to time. Probably not regularly. Uh, regular attendance is considered once a month. So once a month, you fit in the regular attender camp. Anything less than once a month, then you fit in the uh, probably nominally religious because if you're not going to church on a regular basis, it generally, or whatever the group that you meet with, whatever religion or faith it might be, uh, you're probably not that committed in that space. Uh, and then finally, we have 17%. That would be religiously committed. So again, this is not all Christians. This are those who are committed to any kind of religion or faith. Uh, so the it's a religious faith, whether it's Christian, which would be mainly Pentecostal and evangelical, or Islam, or something else. But this is a group that would say it's a big part of their life. They're committed to it. They would call themselves a Christian, or they would call themselves Islamic, or they would call themselves Buddhists and they really take it seriously, and it really influences their life and their decisions. Only about 17% fit in that camp. Uh, so some broad categories, some broad reflections as we think about this. About 77% of Gen Z are not closed to spirituality. 
A lot of the time when people are thinking about Gen Z or, or any of the generations, it'll be almost from this sense of, oh, they don't want to know about spirituality. They, they don't want to know about God. They're not open to these things. Every single survey I've seen, Australian figures, I've seen American figures, I've seen British figures, I've seen figures from all of those places for most of our generations. It's just not true that the average person isn't interested in the spiritual. In every single study or survey or thing that I have seen and read, the majority of people are open to spirituality. doesn't mean they're open to a specific faith. It doesn't mean that they're interested in being a Christian, but they're absolutely open to spirituality. And those who are ardent atheists are very loud. You'll hear a lot about ardent atheists. They very strongly hold to their opinion. They are always in the vast minority. You'll also see, though, about 62% are actively open. The difference there is with those who are indifferent, they're open to spirituality, they just don't care. 62% of the people that were surveyed for this, and it was a very large survey of a large number of people, 62% are actively open and interested in their being more to life than this. They've got questions, they've got ideas, they've got a sense that there is definitely something more. And 44% are either seeking or are already culturally connected to some level of spirituality. They're nominally religious or they are actually a committed Christian or they're seeking, they're genuinely looking for and believing and wanting and going, I want there to be something true to this. That's actually a significant number. Uh, We're continuing in our series today looking at becoming the church. It's a journey through the book of Acts and we're, we're doing a bit of a journey and saying, how did that church become what it was? It started with a group of about 12 fledgling disciples that kind of got it wrong most of the time. And it grew to about 120 and then it grew to about 3,000 and then it just exploded to spread around the world and become still the single largest faith in the world. How did that happen? What was it that was going on at the time? Our world has changed, and those figures that I just went through are very different to what they were 100 years ago. And so the reality is, is we can't just keep doing the things the way we've always done them. We need to look afresh. And the world we live in today is much more similar to the world at the time of Jesus. And our passage today is going to kind of look to that, to speak to that, to kind of be in sense with that. So the key question that I want us to dig into today Do all religions lead to God? Do do, do all religions, all faiths, all expressions of spirituality, do they in some way end up with the end point of you being with God for all eternity? Is it just a case of just following God and as long as you follow some kind of God, you'll get to heaven? Or another way of phrasing it is this. Can all religions lead to God? It's a subtle difference, but I actually think it makes a significant change in the overall answer. Uh, So I'd love you to jump in with me to Acts chapter 17. If you've been around church for a while, this will not be a new passage to you. It's definitely a passage that's preached on on a regular basis, but there is a reason for that. There is so much depth 
And there's so much that might challenge some of our own preconceived ideas about what it means to help those 77%. How do we walk with those 77% that are open to spirituality towards an understanding of Jesus? So Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 21. While Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy in Athens. So Silas and Timothy, that was from the Bible reading. Uh, He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. There they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's not my adding, that's, that's in brackets, but that is there, that's what the scripture actually says. So firstly, I, I want to go through these three key words that you would have heard and gone, yeah, that probably doesn't mean much to me. Uh, firstly, we've got this group called the Epicurean Philosophers. Uh, they believe that seeking modest pleasure is the chief end of human existence. That that they would say, the whole point of this life is to just enjoy yourself, to to find ways to enjoy yourself in the here and now. They were essentially atheists. Uh, They did not believe in life after death. They did not believe there was more to life than this. They were convinced that your goal, the best thing that you could do with your life, is be comfortable and find ways to be comfortable. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Uh, there was another group called the Stoic Philosophers. Uh, these were what were called pantheists. So they believed in lots of gods. There's all kinds of gods in the world, and they kind of believed in that. They believed the whole world was God, and that everything was governed by a reasoning force known as the Logos. Immaterial and material were linked. It's kind of like everything kind of just flows together and we're all God and everyone's God and everything's God and, and it kind of just sort of flows together. That's also a very strong view in the world today. And then finally, we had this place called the Areopagus. This was the hill of Ares. Uh, it, Ares was, the god, it was a god of war in Greek mythology and the Athenians loved to meet in this place. And this is where they would discuss the latest ideas in religion and spirituality. And they just came together at all times because this was the rich elite. These were those who had lots of money. They didn't need to work for a living. And they came together and they just talked about spirituality. They talked about their different thoughts and different ideas. They were fascinated about the spiritual and there being something there. And they just came together and talked and talked and talked and talked. And so we're set here that Paul's been invited to come and speak to this place. Now, before it says he was distressed to see the city was full of idols. Paul didn't like that there were all these idols. Paul wasn't satisfied that there were all these idols. But he recognized it was not his job to go about and smash idols. 
he had to go about bringing people around to faith in a different way. And so what was the best way? How was he going to connect with this group? This is a diverse group. We've got one group that are effectively atheists, uh, that are absolutely convinced that the best thing they can do is just be happy and comfortable in this life. They've got another group of people who are pantheists, who actually think everything is God and there is no one religion, that all religions kind of get you to God eventually, and you just need to spend this life kind of discovering different spiritualities and having different spiritual experiences. And Paul is tasked with sharing the good news with Jesus. So we pick it up in verse 22, it says this. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Uh, If we were writing this today, we'd probably say you were very spiritual. That's how we would probably word it. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, just before I go on from there, I want to explain what's going on here. The people at the time were so afraid that they would miss a God, that they created this this idol, this altar, and they labelled it to the unknown God. So that it was kind of a catch-all, that that if there was a God that we missed in our pantheon of gods, if there was a God that exists that we missed, this is for them. Because we're so afraid that we might miss out on a God. And so Paul finds this and he goes, I'm going to connect to that. Picking it up at verse 23. For as I walked around, sorry, I said that. Uh, So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this, is what I'm going to proclaim to you. See, what happened was Paul explored what was already in place. He explored what they already believed. He looked for a way to connect with them on their turf, on their ground, where they were thinking. He found a way to connect. He didn't make them Come to him first. I've got a really practical example that I want to sort of workshop a little bit with you. Can we call God Allah? Or is that just the God of Islam? Is it okay, is it appropriate to call God Allah? Now, for some Christians, that would be like, what? You, you can't call God Allah. Like that's, if you were to call him Allah, that's, you're talking about Islam. Like you're, you're in that space. That, that's not okay. Do you know the root and the background for the word Allah is that it comes from the word Elah or El, which is the Hebrew word for God. The very word Allah comes from the God that we are actually talking about. And in the Arabic church and in the Arabic religion, in the, sorry, in the Arabic language, they actually have no other name for God. Arabic Christians would not even think twice about calling God Allah. It connects to the God that they know and serve. I, I would suggest that this is an example of exactly what Paul was doing. 
He was finding something within the known understanding. It's the same as the way that we, you know, in the Old Testament, God has different names. One of the names is El or Elohim. That was just the word that was used for God in general. It didn't necessarily specify the Hebrew God. It was just the word. If you were wanting to specify the Hebrew God, you would say Yahweh. Yahweh was God's very specific name. But Elohim is just the Hebrew word for God, and it would be used for any God. And so Allah, which comes from that very same word, is just another word in Arabic for God. When missionaries go to other countries, one of the main things they have to do is find ways to connect in with what's already believed, to, to find things that are already in place in a person's understanding and belief practices and find ways of pointing that to Jesus. As people who live in countries that are starting to depart from the Christian faith, well, not just starting, they have well and truly, we have to find ways of connecting into the spirituality that exists. And not say, not affirm it, not say it's all good, not say it's all right, not say, hey, just go for it. But find a leverage point and connecting there and saying, let me show you what that actually means in the fullness of things. Let me show you how you've got just a little taste. You, you've got like a tasting. You know when you go to a food court and you're trying to work out what you're going to have. They don't really do this much anymore, but it used to be you could go, go get some tastings. Go, I can just get a little taste. That's what this is like. You're having a tasting, but it's not the full thing. Let me express to you what the fullness of this thing that you're experiencing is like. So Paul goes on to say this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as, is needed, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him. And perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. So once again, he's finding a way to connect with what they know. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you on this subject again. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, I can never say that. Dionysius, there we go, that'll do. A member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. A couple of key things that I sort of notice here. It should be a theme by now. Paul tries to find every leverage point he can 
to connect the gospel to something familiar. As your own poets have said, he, he finds ways to connect them with what they already know as a way of creating a bridge to almost help them see that they're actually not that far from God. That, that actually they might be closer to God than they realize. But what I'm also fascinated by is he doesn't overstay his welcome. So he goes on and he shares a fairly succinct description of the gospel. And they say, hey, we might be interested. We'd love to hear more about this. And then he leaves. Uh, some people might be tempted at that point at, at verse 33 to go, all right, let me tell you. And they're just going to keep going and going. No, no. He just found a few connection points, shared that story, and then he left. But then it tells us next that some people came to know Jesus. You won't have everybody coming and knocking down your door because you managed to get some connection points. But you can also go too far. You can also overstay your welcome. You can also push too much in your desire to see someone who's on that journey. Sometimes you just need to throw out a little snippet and let's see if that actually picks up and takes some time. So we started with the question, can other religions lead to God? Well, I've got two answers for that. First one is yes. I am absolutely convinced that every single faith and religion can lead to God. God can and has used other religious beliefs to call people to himself. It's a common way that missionaries have shared the good news. They get to a place, they find out what they already believe, they connect the Christian story into that view and they lead them to Jesus. But also the answer to that question is no. Because John 14, 6 says very clearly, I am being Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, another faith may be part of the journey, but faith in Jesus must be the destination. Another faith may be part of the journey, but faith in Jesus must be the destination. In Romans, we read it says that if you, if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, you will be saved. That's the key thing to faith. If you're here today and maybe you're exploring faith, you're open to the idea of Christianity, but you haven't actually made a decision to follow Jesus yet. Firstly, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad that you're in this room today exploring and questioning and wondering and thinking and trying to go, what does this all mean? At Austin Cove, we want to be a church where that is normal. I long for the day where there's a huge amount of people who are actually in our church on every single Sunday who aren't actually committed Christians yet but they're exploring and they're asking and they're questioning and they're journeying and they want to know more and they have a sense that maybe they might get some of those answers here. We want to come alongside you and help you explore with respect, love 
and acceptance. So part of our role for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus is to create that space and to be willing to have those conversations with people who may not quite have all of those answers yet, who, who might actually be interested in, in other faiths and spiritualities. The key question that a person needs to wrestle with as to whether or not they are a Christian or not is do you believe in the story of Jesus? Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. Everything else you will spend the rest of your life wrestling with. Everything else, all the other questions, all the other doubts, all the other uncertainties, all the other things that the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches a lot that is really, really important. Everything else you will spend the rest of your life exploring. The key question that everything else hangs on, the question we need to help people wrestle with is, what do you think about Jesus' life? What do you think about Jesus' death? What do you think about Jesus' resurrection? And how do we find ways to leverage and to connect and to enter into other people's stories to help make the story of Christianity real? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, remember this. More people than not, every single survey, every single thing, every bit of evidence, everything that I've seen, all of the things that are not just someone's idea but actually have hard facts behind it, shows that more people than not are open to the spiritual doesn't mean they want to talk about it. It doesn't mean they want that to be the, the, you know, the conversation at the office tomorrow. But it means that they are asking, they are questioning, they're open, they're thinking, they want to know, is there more to life than this? They may not be religious, they may not even necessarily be interested in Jesus, but they're open to the spiritual. We need to do the hard work to find ways to connect where they are to find aspects of their faith system or their belief system or the things that they hold to and actually help them see where Jesus is already present in their story. Because I think he is. I think Jesus is present in everyone's story. And part of how we lead people to know Jesus is we help them find where Jesus already is in their life. But that's our role, that's our job, and that's we have to get over some of our own religious hang-ups and our own, sometimes even our own convictions. We need to be willing to have conversations that are uncomfortable because we might be really not quite okay with what they believe and hold to at that time. How do we enter into that space and just hold? Paul was clear. He was, he was really, he didn't like that there were so many idols. It wasn't that he thought, hey, isn't this great? It's a place that has lots of idols. This is wonderful. No, he was really, really hurt that there were so many idols. But he didn't let his own distaste for that get in the way of using that as a bridge to connect with the people and help them come to know more about Jesus. All faiths might be part of the journey, they need to lead to faith in Jesus. And it's only faith in Jesus that saves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your story.
We thank you for your life. We thank you for your death. We thank you for your resurrection. We pray for humility. We pray that as we go about our lives, where we work, where we rest and where we play, you would help us with humility. Enter into the stories of those who are around us. I pray your spirit would illuminate to us connection points and ways of speaking into the lives of those who are seeking and and are open, are wanting to know more. Help us to do it with gentleness and respect. Lord, may we be like Paul. May we not overstay our welcome. May we not press further than what the Spirit is doing. May we just put out just that little bit that's needed to draw people to ask the next questions. We praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.